This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I actually feel like going away for seminary is one of the most transformative things a person can do. And and this would not be true of all churches, but as you identified that kind of that tendency for certain kinds of church leadership to want to have their DNA impressed on what they're doing, like it's almost like brand management in the, you know, put the worst Mm -hmm. spin on it possible. Yeah. Um, That that also comes down to theological education. Like we don't want you hearing this from somebody else. We just want to tell you what we think the theology is right. Uh, where if you go to seminary, you know, even a conservative seminary, if it's, uh, uh, it's a conservative evangelical seminary, you're just going to hear views that your pastor wouldn't jive with. Right. Like it would, it wouldn't be what they would teach you or whatever, but that's mm-hmm. actually a good thing that you actually need to hear even if it's a bunch of white guys teaching, you're going to still hear perspectives that um, you wouldn't encounter in that local church. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I agree with you about that. Um, my experience at Trinity was amazing. And it, it, it was, um, I mean, you're, you're being traditioned, right? So right. The, the, the tradition is a community and you got to get face to face with the community. My, my only point is um, I think mega churches have, made the judgment that the academic theological, intellectual theological tradition has moved so far from what is needed on the ground for Hmm. practical ministry within our current context that they don't want them to, to be traditioned in two places that they, they want them to be traditioned in one place while gleaning from the other tradition. Cause otherwise they, they go away and they come back uh, sounding like they're seminary professors. Well, yeah, that is true. I always I joke that, you know, your first 10 years of preaching is just basically regurgitating what your seminary professor said. And then, and then once you finally run out of that material, you actually start doing better biblical research on your own. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But I think that the, um, the foreign element that you're hearing, like you really are getting a different, I mean, there's something to be said for what you said, which is, you know, I always, I always tell people who are in seminary, I say, look, I never as a pastor ever had the thought, man, I wish I had just taken one more systematic theology class. I right. often had the thought, man, I wish I had taken a lot more counseling classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, not even preaching classes, because I actually felt pretty prepared for that coming out of seminary, having taken four preaching classes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but counseling is the one, that, you know, like people start walking in your office and you're like, oh, I am not prepared for for this at all. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. In those theoretical discussions we had that kind of prepped the LZ for us, did, did, didn't do anything nearly enough to prepare me. So it's not that they didn't try. It's just like you, you can't just take two counseling classes yeah. and call it a day. Well, and, and I think that when you talk about human problems, you if you answer a human problem before you encounter it, you're just not interested. Like it's, yes, it, you can get people interested in intellectual questions. I mean, they, they makes the question makes sense, right? But unless you've really had the, the, you know, to walk someone through this or that issue, you, you, you'll never get interested enough to make the answer sticky. Yeah. So maybe you talked about it. You've just forgotten that you ever talked about it and you yeah. had no interest. You could, cause you had no con- actual human contextual yeah. background. 
Yeah, I could go back and take those identical classes and they would probably be, would have been mind blowing to me. Like, oh, wow. You right. know, and they're like, no, I'm teaching the exact same thing you learned the first time. Yep. You just didn't have the the host of experiences. Yeah. So that's actually me and a friend in seminary. We, you know, we had said like the ideal version of seminary is you go for a year or two, get mm -hmm. some like spade work in and then go work in a church develop the questions that you're going to then answer as you go and then go back to seminary. It's a, the most infeasible financially and otherwise model, but that kind of dialectical relationship with higher education yeah. where you're bringing those experiences back into the classroom, which in seminary, like we all had those people in our classes that had lots of ministry experience. And you could tell mm -hmm. that the professors like wrestled with their questions more than my questions where, you know, I was trying to figure out whether time existed. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you're trying to figure out whether time exists, uh, you know, your life is not very practical yet. Right. <laughs> well, and I, I tell that story of I was really pushing one of my professors who, who was a mentor of mine in class, like about whether the present tense exists, whether the present exists. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then he just kind of stopped and he said, like, I will answer what I think. But first, um, you need to tell me what you're going to tell a family who just lost a child, why this matters to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so that kind of putting it back in there. And we, we actually did discuss a way in which whether the present exists might have some, you know, influence on how you think about death in a family or whatever. But mm -hmm. um, that's what I value about my, my seminary experience was it was I did not know this when I went to seminary because I didn't shop or anything. I just went to the one that my mentor told me to go to. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I covenant where I went. This is not a plug for covenant. It's just like it was just a unusual thing they actually require every professor to have five years pastoral experience mm. um i did not know until i went into my phd that i don't think many or any other seminary i never heard of another seminary that actually requires pastoral experience mm -hmm. um which did change the flavor of the classroom conversations there i think significantly yeah, and it's probably true that evangelical seminaries too are trying to play two different games, um, mm. where, where they're on the borders of prepping people for ministry, but also wanting to be actively engaged at the table, uh, you know, with mainline biblical studies and and theological conversations. Well, especially biblical studies side of things. Yeah, but uh, playing those two two games is is difficult because. Um, you know, if you've got people who are deeply plugged into church or who've been in the church for a while, um, they just just have no interest in some of the questions that are just raging hot on an academic level. Yeah, yeah, and, and even trying to explain to them why this is a you know is a, a real right. question amongst academics is you know befuddling to many people. Like, but you could admit that both of those things maybe are important at some level. But also, <laughs> the bringing them together is is difficult. Yeah, and so I, I I just think that there's so many churches these days that have seen these institutions try and straddle the two worlds and just say, look, that's fine. You guys can track that question if you want to, but we're not going to spend a bunch of money to send our people there hmm. because all that other stuff we don't really need for what we have to do. What's mission critical to us? Yeah, not a. That's a good point. I, I've also been talking to friends who teach in seminaries that um, have said, you know, like the MDiv programs have basically been emptied out. So that, uh, which is wild to me, that the actual degrees that provide some of that practical teaching, you know, the pastoral theology, the preaching, the counseling, the kind of liturgy uh, guidance, that that's all now considered extraneous. They're coming and getting 
the one, the two year degree that's just theology and Bible. Um, mm. And, but I think the assumption is they're going to pick up all those softer skills mm-hmm. on the job, I guess. Um, From people who do them better. Right? Which then makes me think that is great if, if you're in a fantastic mentoring program on the ground right. in a church. If, yeah. you, if you're in the program that I was in, which is like, here's your office, kid. Go to mm-hmm. it. <laughs> right, right. You're, you're actually just an administrator for <laughs> ministries we don't want to run. <laughs> it, 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 exactly. And uh, and the host of mistakes that you will inevitably make, you know, are, don't worry. Our, con- right. our congregation is uh, long-suffering. They'll, they'll put up with your nonsense, you know. Yeah, or at least it's with the teenagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What could you possibly hurt? No, I was a children's minister for, you mm. know, for eight years. And uh, it's even worse because, yeah, with teenagers, parents have certain hot button issues, you know. But with kids, it's like, uh, you better not say something incorrect. I mean, our, my church was pretty gracious. But, I mean, you definitely saw that, like, what are you teaching? How are you teaching it? What are you going to say? You know, and. If you listen to me, you probably know I'm a little bit on the provocative side. <laughs> so I would do that with kids too, but kids can handle it actually. Yeah. But um, yeah, people are very, believe it or not, people are very touchy about what their kids are learning in church. <laughs> I um, once I once torpedoed a, a uh, small group that I was overseeing by saying that capitalism was the great American heresy. <laughs> well, that's... I mean, that's, that's, this is why I like talking to you, Drew. Yeah, well, I, I got a little pushback when I had a, a life-size stuffed animal lamb and I had the kids laying their hands on it and declaring their sins and then slitting its throat with a, with a bread knife uh, <laughs> and simulating the blood coming out, which people are like, that's wild. And I'm like, it's actually not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you were raised on a farm anywhere in the world. everyday life. Yeah. yeah right. for, for, for many people. But yes, yeah, so that was for some people that was a, that was a cut too far. So. Anyway, to put a bow on this, uh, we, I was saying I talk, initially started with megachurch that yeah. the um, what what you said is dialectical. Mm. That's I think that's what needs to come out of this crisis. Yeah. Let's say that we're in of Christian higher education. I don't, I don't know how how big of a crisis is it? Uh, is it a crisis? Christian higher we- education. I I mean, what I you know when I go to the conferences and I ask people how's it going, it, it's essentially um, about a twenty to thirty percent loss in enrollment for a few years, and then mm-hmm. some colleges snapped right back. Some of them, like mine, did not at all snap back, um, and uh, and we had more like a I think a fifty or sixty percent loss in enrollment. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a deep cut because we're in New York City and there's all these very weird, untrue views of New York City. So I would say New York City is probably the safest place crime-wise and COVID-wise to be in the last few years. But if you watch the news, uh, you might not believe the stats, uh, the actual mm-hmm. statistics of what's happening. Um, so it was rough for us, but, but I think it was rough for everybody. The question is whether they had enough buffer right. to handle uh, the, the bumps. Um, yeah. Or did it tip them over the edge? Yeah. Versus the, another place that I know of, they they are trying to lower their incoming freshman numbers because they've been too high for the last couple of years and they actually can't, they can't handle mm-hmm. that many. And they're growing because they're Christian colleges that are, um, most of their students go into STEM, um, mm-hmm. which is the growing field, in, I mean, in general. 
Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, probably a lot of these jobs in STEM are going to be completely taken over by AI. <laughs> like even pro, you know, you think like programming It used to be, I mean, you still need programmers, right? right? But like a right. lot of the grunt work of programming is getting ready to go away uh, pretty soon. Right. There. Um, yep. So some of my programming friends are happy about that. Some of them are not. So, mm. so yeah, this, um, the, I, I think the, the reality from my side working in Christian higher ed for the last 12, 14 years is that I think what you'll see on the seminary side is you'll see seminaries that either like Southern seminary, right? Like it's just, they're, they're going to bring in students no matter what, because it's a giant uh, national seminary for the SBC. Um, but other seminaries are either going to say like, they're going to just put their head down and say, we've got this magical faculty and staff and what we do is transformative, which is probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, or the, the ones that are market savvy are going to say, how do we change our programs to fit this dialectical? How do we make mm-hmm. tighter partnerships with churches where we can send people back and forth and it's not a financial yeah. burden for everybody involved and, or an undue burden, I should say. Yeah. Um, but my, my, uh, fear is that in reality, what that is just going to mean is zoom classes, um, right. Which there are, you know, I was on a board of Pillar Seminary for a while, and um, they've been... That's, that's out of Omaha. Here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, they've they done Zoom classes before anybody knew what Zoom was. You know, when Zoom, COVID came around, they're like, we've been doing Zoom classes for four years. Entire, they used to have facilities in Omaha, and they actually mm-hmm. gave them up because they, they found out the way they do classes works just as well over Zoom as it does in person, because uh, they were doing flip class, or they do flip classroom a lot. So... Um, I think you're going to see the rise of um, hybridized um, seminary training, but then even more so, I think you're going to see some of these more disruptive um, organizations that come in and say, no, we, we do it very differently. Uh, you don't need to send them away. We'll, we'll bring them away, but you don't have to actually send their bodies or whatever, which mm-hmm. to me is not super. Yeah. I mean, it, it can work. The, yeah. be, because you're saying there's something about going away, being fully immersed and in the culture of the learning environment. Yeah. I think breathing the air, you know, I was talking to an alum the other day and I said like, look, when it is different to study a topic versus going into that program and everybody in that, it's not like undergrad where there's computer science Mm -hmm. with, you know, literature majors, like everybody there is to study that thing. Um, I remember the guy who talked me into going to seminary when I didn't know what it was. Uh, he, he's just like, look, He's like, don't just go to classes. Like your most uh, valuable learning time is going to be sitting around with your fellow students and debating Mm -hmm. and talking through these issues together. And he was right. I mean, I actually say, you know, classroom time and reading was probably 60% of my learning experience, but probably the other 40 was uh, friends uh, in seminary Mm -hmm. help. And I I can imagine, I mean, I, I was at a place in Dallas, a big mega church that did this kind of in house training. Um, and I think they were reading pretty widely, but they weren't a denomination, so they didn't have like any particular denominational affiliation. And one of the people there who was leading up the training had a PhD, and right, they were working on a PhD in theology. So they, you know, they were basically relating the things they were studying to the church, essentially, which is a great mm-hmm. way to to do deep study is to be teaching it at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, like, you know, the mega churches you've been involved. Cause I, you know, I've never been. I've never even set foot in a mega church. I don't think so. <laughs> and that's true. I've been to Willowbrook um, okay. when I was a children's pastor because they used to do children's training. But 
like, do you feel like there's theological territorialism kind of built, baked into that system that you have to actively resist? Or do you feel like it's a more ecumenical space because it is a megachurch? Na- yeah, naturally. That's a, yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think that there is, uh, there is a fair amount of theological ter- territorialism, if only because there's, there's, there's a lot of cultural territorialism. So megachurches tend to have um, a pretty tight brand in terms of culture of who they are. And so then that can also bleed over into theological commitments, but their theological commitments tend to be more vague as well. Hmm. So as not um, to offend. Yeah. 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 And the, the darker angel angels in me are like, yeah, you don't want to offend potential tithers. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's the the emphasis is is just different. I mean, the the emphasis will be on theological areas where uh, they have a lot more um, cachet in in how church works. Um, so that you know the the questions that mega churches tend to be interested in are just very different. They're, they're a lot more practical, and on those questions, they might be more insistent. Mm. I, I mean, we're saying all this about mega churches. I have been in smaller churches that essentially try to recreate all of this ma- mega church madness, magic, I guess. Yeah. Did I say madness? <laughs> I meant magic. <laughs> right. All yeah. the mag- sure me- mega church mag- magic. <laughs> That's really hard to say, actually. Um, yeah. I mean, a, a church of like two to 300. But if you look at the programs and what the pastor's doing and what the initiatives they're pushing, right. it, it, it sounds like it's a church of 12,000, you know. Um mm-hmm including like parking lot ministry and, you know, you're like, mm-hmm. there's only 50 spaces in the parking lot, but you know, <laughs> um, which, but I appreciate a good parking lot ministry, you know, especially in downtown Newark, that's hard to get people squeezed in. Um, yeah, yeah. so there's part of me that thinks like, well, let the mega churches do all of this because you know, they're going to do their thing and they're going to do this no matter what they have their own cosmos and ecosystem that they're setting up. And, and most churches in the United States are still like around 80 to 100 people. Um, so that's where most people are connecting to church is through small church experience. But it seems to me that probably lots of small churches are going to end up mimicking mega church stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that even small churches I go to, they have a drum set, they have a soundboard, right. you know, a soundboard bigger than yeah. uh, ones you used to see 20, 30 years ago. Even maybe even light shows now. I've been in just very small churches in very urban settings that have a light show and everything but a fog machine. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so I wonder if there's something that it. The danger of that model is not the the actual mega churching the way they do it, but that it it has such a deep impact on the way other smaller churches. Yeah, it could be. I mean, mega churches uh, they're yeah, they're very controlling. Like, like you've got to get all the particulars right mm. to get the machine oiled well, right? But, but that means that the the megachurch um, sort of quasi seminaries are going to be um, basically driven by, like, you're not going to get a diversity of teachers in those settings, mm. because e- even if you sort of, you know, are teaching a sort of mere evangelicalism with a few um, megachurch quirks, and you're still insistent like you're not pushing the envelope in terms of ecumenical dialogue Mm. and so um i i'm actually uh i'm actually beginning to think that what what may work out better in the long run is is more of a geographically oriented model where churches come together and and give space for um a a broader 
conversation where people are encountering views that that they don't share. So I I, I don't know much about it, but I, I've talked with um, somebody at uh, Indy Seminary, uh, it's a, a new seminary in Indianapolis, and basically they started by going around to the churches and asking, "Hey, <laughs> you know, how how can we serve you? Do you want to come together and partner with us?" Novel. And yeah, I. I appreciate that because it, it gives you at least the opportunity. I mean, there's going to be multiple people who are trying to control tightly their brand coming together uh, and you're going to be forced to have some, some genuine dialogue. Uh, I, I think that that's what, yeah. Uh, th- there's a lot of, um, you know, benefits of, of being very type A about, you know, making sure that you've got excellence in what you do. Mm-hmm. But, but the downside is that, um, you know, that it, it both, curbs a lot of creative freedom that would be possible, but also um, some important dialogue. I mean, that's the, the thing about academia is that we just handle questions differently. Mm-hmm. So if I ask a question, I might work on it for 20 years and it's an open question right. for me, but the church very often has the impulse to close the questions as quick as possible. But there is some virtue that's inculcated by really sitting in a question for a while and um, really trying to come at it from different perspectives. And uh, Hmm. I think that's my fear is that training that happens in close connection with the church often just sort of becomes, um, becomes a sort of accreditation. Here's what you need to know to do what we want you to do. And, um, and there's, there's something about going away to those academic spaces where there's some academic freedom and you're really free to, to wrestle with things um, even within a confessional environment mm-hmm. where you're sitting within the, the, the Christian tradition, um, uh, I really appreciated that. Like uh, I went to first, I went to a conservative seminary that I would have, or I was forced to sign off on um, uh, premillennialism. Whoa! <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> if I wanted to graduate, wow! Uh, not just, I mean, so, so, so I just, you know, my solution was don't read books on this, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I came in with that view. I'm going to go out with that view and then I'll think about it after I get done, you know? Um, so I, I appreciate a context like Ted's where there's, uh, where there's lots of different views that coming, that come together and you can, um, really, really pursue intellectual virtue by understanding another view from the inside. Yeah. That, I think you just clarified a phenomenon that I have encountered in doing training with churches where, my training is more like how to understand scripture better. And it usually is like, Hey, this is starting a long conversation with scripture that will continue for years. And cause I think scholars, you know, you're often, right. you say, well, when I first started researching this, this is what I thought was going on. And then I realized there, I was missing this thing and like, yeah, this unfolding, uh, which I think for scholars excites us, you know, like that we're mm-hmm. going to find something out. It's not going to be what we thought, yeah. or it's going to be richer than we thought or more complex than <laughs> we thought. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I, and you know, I'd always get this feedback, like enjoyed the training, but you didn't answer any of the key questions you said at the beginning. (laughs) I mean, you know, like, and the key questions were like really big, you know, beefy theological questions. What does it mean to be biblical? Yeah, exactly. That that they somehow thought I was going to solve in 90 minutes, but that. um, In five quick steps. Yeah. I, I, and okay. So like you said, you've been enjoying preaching lately before we started recording. And then um, I, you know, I've got a very mixed relationship with preaching as far as what I think it's doing, ritually speaking. But mm. I, you know, one of the things that sermons often can do 
is tie a bow on something every single week, right? They create a problem, they walk you through it, they illustrate it, they help you to apply it to your life. And um, and there are just genuine long stretches of scripture that actually can't be applied to your life this week. Uh, we mm-hmm. probably need about, you know, 50 weeks or, you know, 80 weeks of thinking through this issue to get there. So mm. what role do you, how do you see the sermon in a way that opens up these dialogues and makes and extends them and says, Hey, it's okay. We didn't figure anything out today. Let's come back to it again next week. Cause I can already tell that will be the, that will be the signal for some people to walk out the door and never come back because you're not answering questions. You're just uh, creating new ones that are more bothersome. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose there's a way of resolving things without resolving them. I mean, so, you know, this last week I just preached on, uh, Luke, the, the end of Luke 20, beginning of week, Luke 21. And um, we were especially looking at the scribes and how they love the places of honor. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they, what they love is status. And um, that leads them to act hypocritically and especially, um, you know, not to see the widows that they were exploiting. Um, and so, you know, I just asked a, a bunch of questions about like, hey, <laughs> what 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 do I love? Do I love status? And especially went through self-deception, just like, what's the story that I'm living? What's the heroic story I'm living? What's my role in it? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, why is it so hard for me to revise this story or, for, or to see mm-hmm. where I might be self-deceiving? And so it, that was a sort of heavy question that sort of hung over the sermon was, wait a minute, maybe I'm self-deceived. And I see that as a sort of, that that's, that's what we walk out with is the is the uncertainty that that I need to explore more about what's going on in my heart. But it does, um, th- there is also the possibility of resolving, especially through concrete examples, mm. um, just, you know, of people who have, have walked this path before and have seen things or, or even just of concrete ex- examples of what, like not pursuing the status game looked like. Um, in, in Jesus' case, he sees the widow and he honors her. He, he ranks her above all the rich people who gave mm. so much. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a tension. I think you have to you have to find ways to preserve that tension within your preaching. Is to say, look, this is a long game. We're 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 on a journey of of learning about God, about myself, about the world that He's created. Um, and maybe there's like. Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a scope and sequence, just like there is in education. Mm. You know, you you learn how to add before you learn how to multiply. And it's the same thing with the church, but, but always, I'm always pre- uh, planting sort of breadcrumbs to right. say, wait, wait a second, there's, there's more we need to pursue here. But, but I think people get, um, people just get tired of having, you know, 16 different things that they have to pursue for the rest <laughs> of their lives. So. Well, it's, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't think this would be that fruitful, but the, um, the comparison between scholar and, and churchman, which y- you work for an organization or you were an organization, the Center for Pastor Theologians. Did you work with them? Uh, I'm a fellow. A fellow. So um, you're familiar yeah. with their. Yeah. I haven't tracked them that closely, to be honest. I just know some people who are involved with it. But um, the you know, one of the things that strikes me is, as a scholar and a teacher is I constantly get feedback on everything I do. Um, mm-hmm. And I seek out feedback. So I like do anonymous mid-semester feedback because um, I don't want to wait to the end of the semester to figure out what my mm. students hated. So I'm, I'll, I'll do an early and a mid-semester um, to kind of get their get their take on things and adjust as I go. Um, 
And then I get the after the semester feedback. I get feedback from peer evaluations, provost evaluations. I submit articles or chapters and I get feedback there. And uh, mm -hmm. it's like a constant world of, of uh, feedback that is not always wholesome or helpful. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. it's hateful even when it comes to students. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think like, okay, as a pastor, where are you getting those feedback mechanisms, right? And I almost feel like it's some, you know, some uh, who take an executive view of pastors, basically almost they structure their ministry so that they're not actually ever getting the real dirty feedback or they, they have to buffer it when it comes in or, you know, they dread meeting with that person because they really got to have a talk with them about what they said on Sunday, you know. Um, and so it's like an intrusion. Feedback is an intrusion into normal ministry rather than this regulative part. Is it is that yeah. your experience as well? I've I've been out of the game of full time pastoring for like fifteen years. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it probably that's one of the virtues of academia is that um, we uh, are forced. We're sort of, not forced, but we're sort of liturgically initiated into um, a sort of radical honesty. Mm. <laughs> Um, I mean, everybody comes in just feeling like a fraud, mm -hmm. um, and you yeah, it's got really a downside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, emotionally. Yeah, but 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 what what makes it worth it is that you get a PhD, and so now all of a sudden you're doctor so and so, you know, yeah. and so um, which just confirms uh, that you know that you're a fraud. <laughs> sure, sure. Like now sure. you're complicit in a crime. <laughs> but but I think. So I'm trying to both compliment and critique at the same time academia on this, but it, th there's differences in t terms of how people receive feedback, right? So um, proud people uh, are impressed with themselves, but often um, I think the, the, the common thing is that both pride and shame have an ego ideal, which is really exalted. Mm. So like if I'm a proud person, I have an ego ideal and I say, yeah, I'm matching, I'm, I match mm. that, you know? And so everybody who criticizes me is just an idiot. You know, they don't know what they're talking about, you know, because I, 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 I'm take so much pleasure in how I live up to my ideal of myself. Um, on the other side, if you have an ideal, like, Hey, this is who I should be. Um, but then you don't meet it. It's very, it's profoundly painful. Mm. Like that's, that's what shame is. And so, in both of those cases, I mean, it, you know, on the shame side, if you just get one more piece of feedback <laughs> when you already feel like crap, right. I mean, that's just, it's soul, soul crushing. And so, but I think that that's one thing that academia at least inculcated in me was um, this idea that, um, no, it's okay to live in radical honesty and radical transparency <laughs> and just to accept who I am and not try and set this ideal out there. Mm. I mean, I, I think in some ways you, you, you're just going to get destroyed if, if you don't do mm -hmm. that, you're never publishing enough. You're never smart enough. You're never quick enough with your answers You're, And you just have to say, this is who I am. This is what I can do. And I think that people have to go through that and pastors have to go through mm. that. Um, just have to be able to recognize your limits. But I think on the, on the proud side, you see a lot of pastors who are just like, you know, so self-confident in, in who they are and so pleased in who they are that they don't, they're not open to feedback. They just dismiss them. as just wrong. Mm. And on the other side, you see pastors who are destroyed uh, by that feedback because they don't have a stable sense of themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's just so much negative feedback to, to deal with. And I think the, the way out of that is really, I mean, it's a Christian way out, just understanding who you actually are, but also being capable of receiving grace and love and, and belonging in Jesus and in his, his family. Um, 
I, th- I think the church helps us to, to get to that spot. And if you've got a good doctoral mentor, they also help you to get to that spot. Yeah, they are not trained in helping you, but uh, you have a yeah, good one. Right. If you have a good one, yeah, yeah, they might. Yeah, it is. And, you know, in some ways, I I think that it's, it's easier for – well, I think in, in academia, I think the other issue is like, you know, let's be honest. In a lot of places, the pastor – knows as much as anybody else in the room or more about Bible theology, et cetera. Right. Uh, you know, there might be people that know more in certain areas or whatever, but the pastor is typically, at least in a smaller church, they're the expert. Um, mm-hmm. Where when you're in academia, you're surrounded by people who clearly know more than you in lots of other, or they're, they're a better teacher or they're a better mm-hmm. speaker or, you know, they have more encyclopedic knowledge. You forget things all the time, whatever. I mean, there's, I'm sorry. I'm just going with all my own personal issues here, but yeah. Uh, um, no, I, I do not familiar with any yeah, of those issues. Yeah. I mean, it does seem overwhelming because you, you are typically dealing with people for lack of a better phrase, people who are kind of at the top of their game. Um, right. And um, yeah, you, you go to your first academic conference <laughs> and you see the sort of feedback that someone gets on their paper or even just, you know, getting a, a reviewer comments in your paper. You're just like, Oh man. Right. Right. I, and then you kind of assume that that's going to be every room that you're in for the rest of your right. life. Uh, There's a great article. That's something you also have to get over. About, um, why is academic writing so bad is because it's entirely based in anxiety and fear of being attacked for every sentence. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's basically uh, academic writing is building a fort uh, emotionally. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which, and yeah. I, you know, uh, I can imagine that preaching and teaching and, and counseling could be like that as well. It just seems it's a little more, I think, extreme. Uh, under the microscope in academics. But even as a pastor, even in the church today, I look at people and I'm like, why can't I be more warm and generous like that person? You know, <laughs> yeah, of course, I yeah. don't know all the trials and travails that God has taken that person through in order to become that way uh, or that they're yeah. naturally that way. Well, but I, I, when you when you get into pastoral ministry, you realize quickly that you, you can't. Right. I, I mean, you, you're trying to live with integrity, but you can't, um, you can't, uh, build that fort. Right. You just don't have the time. Right. There's the, the next person that needs to talk to you and the sermon the next week. And, you know, uh, so it's, it's, it, I think, I think being an academic and then going to the church is actually a great hmm. um, pathway because it, it, it just teaches you one, how to be self-critical, but two, also just how to get over mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've struggled on the hill of just do something, do all of that. say yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of the the demand of every every week needing to preach, every week needing to meet with people, and yeah, no, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what would you be your advice if you had a young woman or a young man who are saying, "I feel called to ministry"? Like, what would be the the paths that you would point them to? Yeah, I mean, I I, I suppose, you know, part of what makes this complicated is uh, I I wonder how common it is for someone to be deeply embedded in a church to go away to seminary for three years and then to come back to that mm. church. Because most of the people who are asking that question, uh, or in most churches, the people who are asking that question are people who are saying, I want to go into ministry in some abstract place other than here. Right. <laughs> I, want to, I and, want to do what you're doing, just not here. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, and and that's the reality too, is you can't do what I'm yeah. doing here because I'm yeah. doing it here, yeah. you know, so you're going to have to find Good somewhere point. else to do Good it. point. It's a numbers game, uh, but then the other the other case would be you've got people in your church who are, who are wanting um, to serve the church in ways, or maybe they're they're wanting to take a, 
a, an entry level position in the church and they're thinking about doing ministry. So they're actively serving the church or they're mm. planning to actively serve the church while they, while they go to seminary. And I, I think that's why I'm a fan of these hybrid models is because I've not just been in megachurches, I've been in megachurches that have movements mm. like that. Um, our current, my current church has a uh, current church, <laughs> the church that I have the pleasure and honor to serve at city light church in Omaha is, um, has planted a number of churches, uh, over 10 churches already. Mm. And, um, there's a lot of people who are working in those churches where they're, it's their first job, but they don't have seminary training. And so when they're asking the question, they're saying, I'm doing it already. How do I get the mm. training? And so I, I do think that it's, it's important that seminaries rise to meet that challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I think there's, there's two possible cases there. Um, in in our case right now, you know, most people are just doing online education, and <clears throat> online education has significant drawbacks, as we've been talking yeah. about. Um, but it also can be mitigated by uh, studying with a cohort of yeah. people that you can have conversation with, having maybe even a, a local guide who doesn't maybe teach all the accredited courses, but who can kind of talk you right. through it and be a, a, a model first learner for you or things like that. So that's where I, that's where I'm saying I, I think things need to develop. Like we need to have some adaptations, um, to, to, to cope with the on the, on the ground realities. Mm. But I certainly hope that the seminaries don't die. The ones that are, are offer you that sort of immersive place to go. Yeah. It, it, it is a really hard sell. I mean, cause someone sold it to me and they said, Hey, look, I think you should go to seminary. I'm like, Oh, okay. Tell me more about that. Well, it's four years full time. Uh, right. And, and at the end of it, you'll get a master's degree. <laughs> yes. Right. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, and, and it will cost you, you know, there's no, there's no scholarship. You need to like figure out a way to pay for it. And I mean, that's just a big ask. Um, and typically I think, you know, my experience at being around seminaries was, you know, if you ask people, how did you get here? And they say, well, this is where my pastor went. Or, or uh, my pastor didn't like where they went. So they suggested this instead, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it really is just kind of like this is this is what people did that I respected, so that's why I'm here. Uh, but not a not mm-hmm. not a ton more beyond that. Um, it's it's interesting though because I've never worked full time in a in a smaller church, and so I I think it would be a very real dilemma to have someone come up to you who's like an integral member of your church, who's you know maybe working a secular job, but they're young enough that they are considering this. And you're like, no, I want you <laughs> to keep teaches, teaching Sunday school for yeah. us. But honestly, if you do want to be a, a senior pastor at some point in the future, uh, seminary is is the training that will get you most equipped to do yeah. it. You know, on, on location, but you're telling them essentially goodbye. Yeah. Well, and and you know the flips. I mean, honestly, I I haven't been talking to young guys that much about this at all. I mean, a few. Hmm. The most people I talk to uh, have this conversation with is mothers um, mm. who are who really feel called to do something. They're you know very bright. They are they're reading all the books you know that mm-hmm. we were reading in seminary. They're just doing it on their own and saying yeah. I want more and you know or me saying like oh yeah don't read that guy anymore. <laughs> he left yeah. the reservation or whatever. Um, but uh, and they're saying but I have four kids at home and you know we're basically on one income or whatever. Um, and so that's where I'm like, okay, these, these hybrid models, these, you know, these disruptive models uh, that can pick you up where you're at, um, 
you know, seem like a good a good deal for the for the interim. It's not ideal, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't know if it was ever really realistic for most of us as young people to just go off and sell yourself into debt. Uh, which for I was fortunate mm-hmm. to not have to go into debt for grad school, but um, that also meant that mm-hmm. I worked full time overnight shifts, which meant that I slept about an hour and then went to lectures. I mean, so I mean, it's these are big sacrifices, no matter which way you do it. Um, but I'm finding less and less young men that are saying, yeah, sign me up for that transformative experience and more like, what can I do with the least amount of effort and least amount of time in order to do right. the ministry stuff? Um, which I'm, I'm I like, if, that's not a great I motivation. <laughs> I wonder if it's possible for communities to get on board with the transformative immersive experience in a way that maybe was more common in the past, but isn't common mm. now. Like, like, why couldn't you send someone away and pay their way to have that? And with, with the expectation that they would return and they would, they would work within that community. Mm. I, I just think, you know, and maybe it's just because I read too much Wendell Berry, but uh, he's a little unrealistic on several fronts, but yeah. 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 Well, to a guy living in New York, that's yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be an ecological disaster for us all to have 40 acres and a mule, but set that aside. but, But I think, the the thing about that is is what the way he talks about membership mm. is th- that we are members one of another is a very very biblical way of of looking at um, how we relate to other people. I mean that's how the Bible talks about how we relate to other people, and um, I I think that we tend to see ourselves just as sort of free agents, sort of religious sole proprietors mm. who are who are you know going to pick up and go wherever uh, we're most needed in that particular moment. But, um, you know, the, uh, when you've, uh, let me put it this way. I had a, uh, my brother-in-law just moved to Duluth, Minnesota, where I'm from. And, um, Duluth is a place where people stick around a lot mm-hmm. more. And, um, I mean, just like all small places are, um, but he was having a conversation with a guy about some problem that he had on the land that he bought. And, and, uh, he, he mentioned, in passing, uh, or he asked him, Hey, did you know George Olson? Who's my grandpa? And he's like, Oh yeah. And all of a sudden the whole thing flipped, <laughs> like this guy was so helpful mm. and all, and all that. And, uh, because the kinship clan really matters there and it, it'd be really hard to work in that community without some roots, mm. uh, in that community. And I, and I just, I think that, um, you know, I don't actually know but it seemed like it was more common for churches to send people away and expect them to come back and to really build in in that way. And I wonder if churches could get on board with that again. Yeah, I mean, that's um, the Langham model is Langham partnership. Uh, they fund, um, you know, African, South American, Asian mm-hmm. scholars to go and get their PhDs, but they require them, you know, they'll pay, they'll pay you to go, but you have to go back to your home country and do five mm-hmm. or 10 years of teaching there. And, you know, you have to, you have to bring the goods back. And yeah, mm-hmm. so I think this is all financially, I mean, knowing what most church budgets look like, it's actually entirely financially possible to do this, uh, but you do have to commit to it as a church and has to be part of your, your ethos of sending and, and receiving people back. And you also have to receive them however they come back, right? In whatever right. shape they come yeah. back, you got to receive them. So, Yeah, but I, but I think both of those are, are sort of the, uh, the emblematic of the breach of trust that we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah. I, I think there is a breach of trust between church and academy. And 
however you want to slice whose fault or, or what that is, um, that's the problem that needs to be yeah. solved. Okay, so all you seminary administrators and presidents who are listening, um, they'll have to uh, they'll have to fix that one first. Uh, start working on it. Crack that egg. All right, Matthew Lapine, thank you so much. Uh, we weren't supposed to talk about this at all. This is a completely different thing that we were going to talk about, but um, we'll get on to the, uh, that topic that we were going to talk about some other time. But thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.